we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On Buffalo What's Next, we're talking with Professor Jason Knight, Associate Professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at uh, Buffalo State University. Professor Knight, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, lots to talk about. You, you actually cover a lot of uh, areas of, of concern that this show has addressed in, in its uh, infancy here at uh, WBFO. But what brought my uh, attention to you, a couple of tweets I stumbled across recently, criticizing the use of the term inner city. Uh, I, I believe maybe one of the local publications was using it, and you criticized it. Let's talk about that, because labels are something that we're finding have value, and in a lot of cases, detrimental value, to the people of the city. Yeah, so I mean, that the term inner city is, um, if you kind of have a history of sociology, you know, in the early Chicago School of Sociology, um, generally found that when we looked at cities and patterns of, of race and, and ethnicity and occupation, that the poorest households generally lived closest to downtown. Um, so we had this sort of immediate poverty and racialized conversation around who lived closest to downtowns, right? Um, and so then that term kind of becomes this concept of inner city, which is racialized, right? And now we have this term when someone says that term, most people's minds flash race and poverty, right? That term has become racialized. Um, and so the using that term is, um, I just think it's a little bit slippery um, of a term because it is trying to define a geography within a geography. Um, and so the question is, what are we trying to define or what are we trying to indicate significantly with that term? And I think it is something that is uh, racialized. It's interesting because and after talking to you a little bit, you have a, a media background as well. And so you understand to a certain extent how perhaps somebody is performing or executing their job when they're putting together a story like that. And maybe they're looking as much not necessarily for defining something mm -hmm. as they are just looking for another term yes. to, to just you know, carry the, the story along. Yeah, sometimes it's like I know what it's like to write a headline, right? You got a you got a co column widths and you got a little bit of space. So, you know, if you have to cut the terms down and you know find something that's a little bit shorter, you use inner city, right? Um, so I, you know, I'm a big person and and big believer in the idea that words matter. They have connotations and they have explicit definitions, and um, when we use them, we should understand what that's Going to, how that's going to be responded to or understood by the people that are reading it. And I just feel like inner city is one of those terms that's a little bit, um, it should just be refreshed. We should, we should come up with something different. There's an opportunity for that, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, yeah. And there was a good piece written maybe six or seven years ago by, a, by an academic researcher that said we just eradicate the use of that term. It's, we know what it is. We know why it's been used that way. It's, it was used in slum clearance and the urban renewal era. And it just, it's just a loaded term. 
and I'm getting somewhat off of our topic here, but it is interesting about terms. There was a slight push, and I think it still exists, after 514 to take away the term east side of Buffalo and make it east Buffalo. I haven't done any scientific polling on this by any means, but I've I've brought this topic up with people who live in in that community. And most East Side. I live in the East Side. I like the East Side. East Side's fine with me. What, what are, what's your take on that type of thing? Yeah, I mean, the rebranding neighborhoods is a is a really dubious undertaking, I think. Um, you know, Google tried it with the Fruit Belt a bunch of years back, and suddenly it shows up as Medical Park on, the, on, on their maps. And, um, you know, it, I don't think it's my position as a suburbanite to determine what the name of a neighborhood exactly. is. But I also don't think it's the position of legislative boards and branches of government to also make that determination. Um, if you come up with a name for a neighborhood that runs counter to how people that live in that space understand their neighborhood and have a historic or cultural connection to that neighborhood, and you decide that you want it rebranded um, to kind of wash away some bad memories, I just don't think that that's appropriate. Yeah, that's an interesting take about that. because But there, but there like you said, there is value and in words and right. in terms for sure there, right. there's no doubt about that and, and another element as well is that we talk to a lot of folks about it, it, just that we don't want other people telling us about our solutions you were, spend a lot of time working and thinking about planning and, and things along those lines talk about process a little bit how how would you s- suggest or advise Starting to develop processes, because there's a lot of work to be done in the city. I don't think we are revealing a secret when we say that. But yet, at the same time, we hear, we have to have conversations. We have to have conversations. How about that, from an, from your perspective and, and knowing what it's like on the ground to a, to a certain extent? Yeah, I mean, the, the East Buffalo sort of solution, right, that we just rename it and everything goes away isn't a solution at all. It's political expediency. It's a shield um, from criticism of, of a lack of action in that space in, in the past. Um, we don't see a lot of um, investment on the east side, uh, mainly because you know, historically there's just not a lot of fabric left there. Um, it's been disinvested for so long, and it's been ignored by local and state governments outside of you know some HUD grants and things like that. But, uh, but at the end of the day, we don't, what we don't have in the city of Buffalo um, are neighborhood plans. It was this large urban space of 270,000 people, and we don't even have guiding documents at the neighborhood level that tell us what the vision is for that space and then how it is that we're going to achieve that vision collectively in a shared manner. It doesn't exist. It's absent. Um, so essentially what's happened in Buffalo in the last 15 years is we have some investment interest in very confined spaces, generally downtown, um, and then at sort of residential geography, so North Buffalo, the Elmwood Village, those types of places. Um, and so we've, we have a state-level policy system um, that made those places useful for investment because we had all these tax credits, historic preservation, adaptive reuse, all these credits that, that made our older buildings useful in some way, shape, or form to the private capital sector. What we don't had, we didn't have on the east side was interest in those same types of reuses and, and, and projects because um, because there's no market for it. The market in the East Side was very weak. So absent a plan or strategy that tells 
the private market now that we have a plan for this geography, leaders have to lead. Planners have to lead. And that is we help create the vision for this space so that people who live in that neighborhood and do business in that neighborhood know what's happening and what's going to happen. But also, if you're interested in economic development in that space, you just, those neighborhood plans are a signal to the private sector of what we envision this place to be, and we want you to get on board to do that, right? So ab- I just feel like absent neighborhood-level plans, what tends to happen is we do things in the city of Buffalo on a project-by-project basis, right? one by one by one by one. And when we look at them systematically as a whole, we see that working in certain spaces. We see it absolutely undeniably ignoring other spaces, and that space mainly being east of Main Street. It's also interesting when you talk about there's no plan for these neighborhoods. Not all that long ago, I mean, I guess it's in the last six months, of course, there were you know, redistricting in the city of Buffalo. It seemed important for somebody to change the lines of the districts in the city of Buffalo. And yet, like you said, you know, now all of a sudden this district is different, that district is different. And yet you're suggesting that there's really no real plan other than just to redraw lines. Yeah, the redrawing of lines is just about securing power. That's all that is. There's no there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Redrawing the lines to make sure that everybody who's on council maintains their council seat is the purpose of the city's effort to redistrict. It has absolutely zero connection to actual policy. It's purely about power. Let's get back to the idea then of coming up with a plan or plans that could help. And, and I'd like to try to, if we can, let's talk about the east side. Maybe break it down. It sounds like you've spent a lot of time analyzing and thinking about this. What about the east side? In, in some ways, you'd like to think that there is opportunity there, right? That you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of vacant lots. There is an old infrastructure of what was once upon a time a quote-unquote walkable community, right? I mean, that's what the you know, people who lived in the Fruit Belt and lived off of Broadway and Fillmore, you know, they, that's, how they, that's how those lives historically were, were handled. What's there right now that's an asset? What has to... It's all an asset. The whole place is an asset. The people are an asset. The radial street plan that we have that's, you know, bisects all these blocks of residential that are commercial corridors. Um, you know, the vacant lots, I've, I've said for years, are an undeniable asset. They are the building blocks of that space. Um, so I, I, I always try to look at the east side as the opportunity and then that opportunity has to meet will somewhere along the line, right? It has to meet the will of the elected officials and government, which control, let's be honest, they control the most important physical assets in that space, land, roads, sidewalks, public education, all that stuff. Um, so we have all these amazing assets, and we have this group of people that are passionate about their neighborhood and their, and their history and, and connection to that place. Um, but we don't have the guiding documents to make it happen. So, um, you know, when you think about, when you look back at, I've been looking at historical, downloaded every historical map I could find in this, from the city of Buffalo from wow. like the 18, actually the one from the 1700s that I found. But, um, and just looking at that, you know, those, the radial streets that, that emanate downtown and go out were dense commercial corridors, um, and surrounded by walkable residential blocks. Um, it was what a city was meant to be. Um, so all the design aspects exist there. It's just a matter of what do we do to bring it back. And that's where the gnashing of teeth and the disconnect, I think, is. You know, when you mentioned streets, it just reminded me of the other night. Uh, I was over uh, 
doing uh, some field reporting on Jefferson Avenue, and I was, uh, oh boy, I cannot remember the street now, um, unfortunately, but it was beautifully paved, and then right in the middle inter- of the intersection, this was right near uh, Northampton and uh, Best, um, right in the middle there was, uh, an, uh, the paving stopped, and there was a, a giant hole in the middle of it for the, for the, the sewer cover. I mean, what, what, I mean, when you see things like that, as someone who's into planning, what do you think of? Yeah, I mean, everything is uneven, right? As a geographer, when we're looking at spaces in a given location, we're we're looking for patterns that are interesting to us. And we always see patterns of uneven development, investment, race, income, all those things. Um, and I'm always my, I'm always thinking, well, wh- why? Right. Right. I mean, as a geographer, um, that's what I'm interested in. When I drive down the streets and I see things, I'm like, well, why is that like this? So when, when I teach urban geography – every semester and I try to get kids to think about the, the, the concept of the why of where. Why is this thing existing in this space? And why do, maybe the better question is why doesn't it exist in this other space? Right. right. So that's what I'm always thinking about, which is why are we doing this here but not there? Right. So the, the, when we think about po- planning and policy and in, in particular local level investment, government investment in spaces, those are principles. Where we invest our public tax dollars, our statement of our policy ideals and our policy principles. So when we see massive reinvestment in and around downtown, um, but we don't see it around the east side, where we should ask ourselves, why is the priority and our principles more interested in this space than that space? You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. More to come right after this on WBFO. Check out the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel. Ellicottville is a town of variety, not only in what they have to offer, but the people. The Burlington community is uh, becoming increasingly multicultural, and the library is reflecting that. The parks and playgrounds have been what makes the town of Tonawanda a great place to grow up. The series began in 2003, but it's making its debut on YouTube now. Although some of the businesses and people may have changed over the years, the spirit of these wonderful towns remain the same. We just didn't realize what we had in our own backyard. We need the next generation to protect it and carry on. Learn about Jamestown, Burlington, Welland, East Aurora, and more than a dozen other beautiful communities in our region by watching the Our Town series now on YouTube. I I would live there. Are you looking for a rewarding career in public media? Visit wned.org careers to learn more about becoming a part of a talented team dedicated to making a difference in our communities. Employees at Buffalo Toronto Public Media enjoy a variety of outstanding benefits. We are located in downtown Buffalo and we have free parking. We are focused on inclusivity and belonging. Come as you are and apply today. Visit wned.org careers. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're with uh, Jason Knight from uh, Buffalo State University, Associate Professor 
of Geography and Planning with us on Buffalo, What's Next. Uh, get back to the east side. I love the, the, when you said you look at it as all an asset. It's a great view, and I, it's one of the things that I've grown to appreciate having a chance to talk to community members here about that, that, that value of, of what is there. All right, but we know what's not there, mm-hmm. right? Let's get into that and how maybe again you you can we can talk about general plans and 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 principles and things along those lines, but you know how can we get there? Yeah, that's the that's the massive challenge, right? I mean, there's you know I I, I kind of feel like this the issue in in Buffalo is there's limited dollars. Certainly, right? there's certainly limited amounts of funding available for those things. That's where my earlier point about priorities and statements of principle. Um, when you have a very small pool of dollars to redeploy in your community, um, it's kind of like the old triage model, right? That you kind of divide your place up into the sort of three things, right? Who's going to survive um, without any intervention? Who will survive with some intervention? And who do we have to leave to die? Um, and, uh, you know, the east side has kind of been that third patient, really, um, which is we're better off trying to stabilize and fix the things we know that might have some chances to survive. And so there's this, you know, sort of undertaking when we think about plan- planning and policy of, of, uh, of trying to incubate change in the places that have the best chance. Um, and so that's why the East Side, I think, has, has long been kind of forgotten. So to my mind, um, reframing the East Side as a, this giant opportunity and this giant asset um, and not just calling it East Buffalo because we think that that's going to solve all our problems um, is, is the way to go. And then it's where do we find the money to do that, um, which is the key challenge, which is why a lot of it doesn't actually happen. Um, and then what is the guiding planning and strategy and policy that's going to get us from where we are to where we envision we can be? Um, and it's just like I was saying earlier off air, affordable housing is an undeniable need. There's just no money. Right. There's just not enough money to solve the problem. So there's really just not enough money to address all of the challenges that the city faces. So it's, you know, there's a researcher that I really like to who called it strategic incrementalism, which is you can't just be perplexed by this massive challenge and be like, oh, it's so massive I can't even begin to chip away. Because it does it. feel like that sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And the the better solution is how about we just have like a bunch of small interventions we make strategically over time and, and see if that works because that's better than doing nothing. Right. Right. That's better than doing nothing. Then I'd like your analysis on two particular East Side projects that appear that they're going to be getting um, a certain level, and in some cases, a massive level of investment from the state. The first one, covering the Kensington Expressway. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't wrap my head around that. I don't, I don't see um, entirely what the end goal there is. Um, covering a small section of it doesn't make the rest of it go away. It doesn't necessarily sew the whole neighborhood back together. Um, so I'm not really certain, you know, my friends in, um, you know, the biking, bicycle community and the um, urban design community might expect me to say that because I don't, I don't see the value in it um, from an aesthetic perspective because um, there's a lot of push on that end, you know, it's just sort of redesigning the space. But to me, it's better to think about that. What is the intent for that to do, right? Because... The argument that I hear often is that that's going to fix the thing that it broke, that the, the, the Kensington actually destroyed. And I just don't see that as a logical explanation. I think it's a convenient explanation, but I don't think it's logical. There's not policies and programs and strategies and funding in place um, 
to build off of that, around that, to make that all improve, right? So the only way that that improves is um, you hope that that's a signal to private sector investors to come in and fix that space for you. Because, again, you don't have the plans and policies and strategies and funding mechanisms in place to do that adjacent to that change. So what do they expect? Well, they expect the free hand of the market to sort it out, right? Right. The other one uh, is not too far from there is uh, the central terminal. Uh, magnificent building that a lot of people have put a lot of time into uh, you know, trying to keep that to, that sure. to standing. And, uh, and you know, there's a, a certain amount of investment. It does appear that's going to be coming there. But again, what about that as an, as an opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I've had conversations and, you know, I think some tough conversations with preservationists um, and was invited to speak in front of the preservation group a couple of years ago about demolitions because I've, you know, I kind of got to my, myself in the demolition and vacancy and abandonment space a little bit. And I, you know, I just couldn't see the value in saving buildings over investing money in people. Um, and I recognize architecture is valid and I recognize aesthetics are valid. Um, but I also recognize that white people who live outside of the east side coming in and telling a neighborhood who's got different priorities that saving architecture and buildings is important to them and we're not really all that interested in your social issues um i just find that somewhat disingenuous so my argument was always we can't save everything everywhere all the time but what we can do and i think this is where the central terminal fits into that is we need to identify the things that are absolute must saves right right <laughs> and i think we all agree that and even if you know my sort of prior statements uh, I think we all agree the central terminal is one of those things. Sure. Um, it is a magnificent building, um, and it should be saved at all costs. And it's, it's, I think a lot of us are in the urban studies arena, I guess, um, would, would, would say the same thing. The challenge, right, this is the, the ultimate challenge, is what happens in and around that, and how does that benefit the people that have lived in that space and that geography for decades, and same problem, right? The policies, programs, and funding strategies, funding mechanisms and strategies to keep people in their place as neighborhoods improve do not exist. Right. And, and that brings me to something that somebody floated to me on background, I guess, to a certain extent, or at least a background concern, that if that Kensington gets covered, this terminal builds up, all of a sudden you're going to have this great, very valuable, very attractive space for investment but it will gentrify and just push the people who already live there, and most of them, of course, live in poverty, right, right out of that yeah. neighborhood. Yeah, so if you think about where the investments are happening, it's near east side stuff, right? It is essentially if we take the central terminal and we say that's the farthest east, and then we cap parts of the 33, and then we have this massive reinvestment on the Main Street corridor. So from essentially the central terminal to Main Street, the private sector is now recognizing that they're seeing massive amounts of dollars flow in into that space, which becomes a bat signal for capital that it's okay to consider this place. So Rocco um, Termini said in the paper a few years back, East Buffalo, East Side, the east side of Buffalo is now on the map, right? right? So when that guy is saying it's now on the map, that should raise some alarms because, again, there's no tenant protection in the city. There's no rent control. 
There's no efforts to increase affordable housing. Um, the city's for tax foreclosure auction has turned over thousands of properties to out-of-town, out-of-state, out-of-country investors. Um, there's no mechanism to ensure that the people that have long lived in that space and long suffered from disinvestment and decline will benefit when all this money flows in, if it does, um, because there's no policies in place to make sure they get to stay. That's where the challenge becomes, right? That's where the equity question should be raised. And to follow on that then, because now you have an, an expertise in how it has worked in different places, this investment comes in. Let's, let's, let's just, we'll go with the, the capping the Kensington, we'll go with the central terminal. Mm-hmm. What policies could we put in place, could be put in place, that would keep people in their places and yet still not, I don't want to say scare off these investors, but, you know, that these investors could still I'm talking about private investors now, could still work with and still get the level of payback that they're looking for. I mean, ultimately, I think what we're – I think everyone's generally in agreement that when we're seeing this kind of investment, it's good. We're not saying we don't want capital here. We don't want private interest here. We're saying we want it to be equitable. That's the bottom line, which is we want everyone to benefit, right? And we're always told this will benefit everybody. Well, where's the benefit from Tesla, right? So when we talk about we're told by leaders that this will benefit everybody, but we don't see that actually happening, we have to ask ourselves, what do we need, right? It's the same argument the bill stated. We want a community benefits agreement, right? The same thing should happen in these neighborhoods, right? We need need some form of tenant protection. Um, Rent control would be great. I know it's a slippery slope. Um, community land trusts would be a better solution than what we currently have, which is nothing, right? Which is we have the city's the steward of 7,200 vacant lots. So why do they get to hold them and they get to dictate how they're reused with no plan when they could go into the hands of community organizations to allow them to benefit from all that public-private investment? If it's public-private investment or public-private partnership, the dreaded triple P, (laughs) then where is the public in that? Right? When we have this massive asset on the east side, these vacant lots, those are publicly owned. They're not city-owned. I hate when people say that. They're publicly owned. Taxpayers own that. They should have a say and decide on how those are reused and disposed of. Right. So using those lots as a tool to leverage something in the neighborhood, whether that's affordable housing units or something of that effect, um, is one way to keep people in that space. If we just keep investing without any way to do this equitably, the long run, past my lifetime, will be that neighborhood will flourish and the people that live there now will be pushed off into some other space. That is the end goal. There's no other, there's no way you could convince me otherwise that that's not- Because we've already seen this. Yeah, it's not what what could happen. Right. The, 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 The case study after case study after case study exists of what happens when you move money in you signal that investment is going to happen, but you have none of the policies in place to keep people there. The end result is obvious. Are there cities that do it better? Jeez, I don't. That's, I get asked that question quite often. I don't necessarily know that there really is. I mean, um, you know, I follow a lot of what's happening out in California with rents and property prices, and they're having the same conversations and same arguments that we have, which is there's no policies in place to protect tenants, right? Tenants mainly, they're the most insecure because you don't control your month-to-month tenancy. You're you're left to the, the whims of your landlord. And if that landlord on somewhere between the central terminal and Main Street decides, 
hey, I'm going to reinvest in this property and double the rents and you got to go, you got to go. There's no protection for you, right? So, um, so yeah, the, the, the housing question or the housing problem is pretty common everywhere, particularly in these distressed neighborhoods that see this massive reinvestment. How do we keep people here? We have to take a short break. We'll be right back with more. Buffalo, what's next on WBFO? Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED-PBS, WNED-Create, and WNED-PBS Kids. Click the primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. The warrior tradition tells the inspiring, heartbreaking, and largely untold story of Native Americans in the U.S. military. Why would indigenous men and women put their lives on the line for the very government that took their homelands? A lot of people ask, why did you join a white man's war? This is our home. This has always been our home. And part of the commitment to protecting and defending your home led to military service. Hear stories of service and pain, of courage and fear in the warrior tradition. Now streaming on YouTube. Listen to Buffalo What's Next weekday mornings at 10 a.m. on WBFO or on the WBFO app. Use the Talk to Us feature to leave your questions and comments. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're talking with uh, Jason Knight from uh, Buffalo State, Associate Professor of Department uh, of Geography and Planning here on Buffalo What's Next. 7,200 vacant lots in the city of Buffalo. Uh, we had one person on this program wanted to develop uh, some community gardens on some of those lots, and at last check, that has been stonewalled. What's going on? I mean, you, I'm not asking about that particular situation. We don't want to air that right here and get into that. But what? What? I mean, why isn't there a progressive approach to the utilization of this of these properties? Well, first, it's. It's almost 14,000 vacant residential lots. 14,000. 7,200 are city-managed, okay. right? So the right. city holds the deed on those. Right. But the large thousands of those have gone through the tax auction and ended up in the hands of right. private investors. So there's that's a massive opportunity. There's 92,000 lots in the city's real property parcels. That's it's about 18% of the total real property in the city, lots-wise, is vacant, right? And that's just on the residential side. It doesn't include all the commercial. Um and so, yeah, we don't have a strategy for reuse, um, and that's a big, big problem. Um, there's not a real meaningful way that the public can get their hands on those in an efficient manner. Um, so they just kind of sit there fallow um, when they are, I would argue, the largest and most important asset in, in, in particular neighbors like the east side where the vast majority of demolitions have happened resulting in vacant lots. We have this massive asset, but we don't really have a strategy for those. Um, and we used to have, the city used to have a homestead plan um, that carved out certain areas in the city that could, those lots could be sold for a dollar. Um, there was supposed to be an updated homestead plan enacted when they enacted the green code. 
And rather than enact that new homestead plan, which would have made almost the entire city a homestead. Um, just define homestead. Then, homestead please. essentially is a, is a law that allows uh, a local government to dispose of vacant property um, for less than fair market value, generally to someone who's going to be um, an owner occupier. So you buy a you know, buy a house for a dollar, you you have to be an owner occupier, um, or you can buy the neighboring vacant lot for a dollar, and you have to maintain and, and operate it. So it was a way to dispose of assets that local governments didn't want to manage and control, um, that the market had essentially sort of ignored, um, and put them in the hands of what we would hope to be responsible parties, right? So they deactivated the old homestead plan and said anything that's in those old homestead plans are still eligible for the homestead program, um, but they did not enact the new homestead plan. And then they pivoted to a everything must be sold for fair market value approach, which essentially was because the city's financial conditions were such that uh, every dollar that they could extract from the sale of lots would be beneficial. Um, and so it's really hard for your grassroots gardens and other organizations to acquire uh, vacant lots from the city to even just temporarily you know, garden them. Um, I know grassroots without you know, getting too deep into it. You know, there was a parcel they were they were gardening, or a community organization was gardening on the west side, and the city accepted a bid for purchase for that for someone to to, to buy. Um, and and you know, they they had all this time and money invested into the space, and and I think uh, Councilmember Rivera might have come in and sort of squashed it and and helped them stay there. And I, and you know, they, they're essentially given a month to month lease. And so if you're grassroots or one of these other organizations that raises capital to buy boards and soil and you're going to do this to help a neighbor organization um, build this farm, um, it's really hard to raise funds when you don't have what the funder wants to see, which is site control. You have this sort of month to month. You have to, We can give you a 30-day notice to vacate. Mm. Um, so you know the whole system of vacant lots is really troubling because it's a massive asset, but getting your hands on them is a real challenge. Mm. So... It's like you said. It's a real challenge. Uh, it seems to me like you've got a passion, though, to take on these challenges. Not that you're going to go do it, you know. But, but, do you believe that there can be something done that that it could be handled? I mean, with uh, again, I, I use the word progressive. You can use the word whatever you want. But that that can there's 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 a real policy opportunity here that can be implemented and fairly easily. Or yeah, I mean, I I fundamentally believe that there should be. Uh, strategy for vacant lots in the city. I know Partnership for Public Good and um, and a lot of organizations have kind of picked up the vacant lot mantle and, and made it a priority for, for them. And, um, you know, other cities are doing the vacant lot thing with at least an inventory and, and somewhat of a strategy. Cleveland and Detroit have, have a pretty good approach to it. <coughs> Excuse me, but we don't, we just don't, ha- don't have that here. Um, but something that was strategic would definitely be beneficial. It doesn't, like, not every not every parcel of land in the city that's vacant has any short-term utility. It might not even have medium-term utility usefulness. Um, so, you know, when Rusty and I have talked about this between him and I and others as well, that, you know, at the end of the day, what you need is a plan that comes up with short, medium, and long-term reuse strategies for these lots. And when you have lots that are – and that requires a sort of come up with a typology of where these lots are relative to market conditions and market strength, um, and then the likelihood that those lots might have value in the short, medium, and long term. So come up with a typology of lots and then go, okay, what are, 
what are the interventions in these long-term lots that we know that really there's no market for it in the next 10 years? Well, that's when you go, okay, well, give a five-year lease to a neighbor organization to do a garden, right, or a pocket park that's temporary or something to that effect. Something that looks like those lots have energy attached to them, right? The people in that neighborhood are maintaining it, using it, caring for it, or something to that effect, rather than what we see in, in parts of the city. When you drive around and you see overgrown lots with trash on them and stuff right. like that, you want to you want to give people an incentive to, to, to do something with them. Um, and, you know, a lot of people just react to the idea that there's a plan in place or an idea in place that's going to march us towards this envisioned end game. Um, and again, we just we lack the reuse strategy plan for vacant lots, and we lack neighborhood-level plans. So what's guiding that? Right. The um, as we uh, continue to talk about this, I want to get into a couple of other things that I know are um, are of interest to you as well, and because uh, you've done a lot of different types of, uh, of discussion about these things, and I just want to I want to read actually from your own <laughs> website here that you're focused on the physical and social evolution of cities and their uh, constituent neighborhoods with a particular interest in policy and planning for distressed neighborhoods. Well, we just talked about that. A lot of these neighborhoods don't have that. Mm -hmm. We'd like it to come from the top, mm -hmm. the top of city government, yeah. or maybe even the next legislative level. If it's not coming from there, where can it come from? Well, we'd like to think that some type of collective action that represented the voice of the people would be responded to by elected leadership, and we just don't see that. Um, we actually more often see digging in. Right. And like uh, almost a pushback of yeah, and almost so like, it can get a little yeah, like, nasty. Yeah. Yeah. So, seen. you know, a lot of these organizations that try, if you play nice, you sometimes can get somewhere. If you question things, maybe not. Um, so it is a collective undertaking because I've said it earlier and I continue to say it. You need a partnership with local government because they are a major player in all of these things, right? They control, at least in the city of Buffalo, they control all of those lots. They also control the zoning of those lots and the land use of that lot. They also control the process and procedure by which you undertake development or redevelopment of that lot. So to try to do something at the local level, um, at the grassroots level, that addresses lots, land use, and development without a willing partner in City Hall, it's a significant obstacle. Um, so that's where, you know, Rusty and I wrote uh, another voice piece in the Buffalo News a few years back calling for um, sort of democratization of uh, vacant land reuse and, and distribu distrib uh, uh, distribution in the city. Um, so that, you know, our thought was, you know, we, some ways we got to make this a collective conversation, which is what I think PPG and others are trying to do. Right. It's a, uh, an election year for the Common Council here in the city of Buffalo. And uh, some districts are, right now, it looks like are going to be, there's going to be some real battles going on to a certain extent. I think that, I know there's at least four declared candidates in the Ellicott District, and I th I've heard talk of a fifth uh, coming in as well. So there's always, it always seems to be that there's interest in getting involved in city government. If you were, uh, uh, what would you advise people when they, these, uh, these candidates are going door to door. They're looking for signatures on p petitions. What would you advise them to ask? How's that? How's that for a question? Like you said, you know, we want you want the right person who's going to be, who's going to represent a better vision for the city of Buffalo. And yet, 
as you know and I know, a lot of it's going to come down to, well, that's, you know, that's my friend. That's someone who's been here forever, whatever the case may be. But uh, engaging that conversation from a grassroots level, a true grassroots level. I'm a resident. This is my neighborhood. This is what I should know about my city and who's going to be trying to run my city. Yeah, it's a it's a question. It's an interesting question because I've had conversations with people that are interested in running for political office at various levels. And, you know, my thing has always been don't run on a biography or on a policy platform, right? Small communities like where I live in the, in the city of Tonawanda, it's a it's a biography. Your palm card's a biography. Sure. I, I coached Little League for 30 years. I taught in the middle school. Yep. Um, I'm a member of the VFW, right? Um, and so when you look at the candidates like a place like the city of Tonawanda – pull their two parties pull out they're, they're generally people whose names are recognized in the community and that can get them votes um but if you want to really see change happen in the city of buffalo your candidates have to run on a on a platform to 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 impact and, and affect change um so you know the i think a lot of the candidates that are going door to door are frustrated with what's happened they probably have a really good pulse of their their district and their community and they're running I think a lot of them that aren't part of the machine are running to change things, and they know what they're going to hear at the door when they're going to get petitions signed. Um, that's not to say that they're not listening, but I think in a lot of these districts, the, the issues are well-known, um, and, and they're running on those, those issues. We're with uh, Jason Knight from Buffalo State University. That's going to take a long time to get used to saying that particular, those particular three words. Uh, another a big interest of yours, and we haven't even touched on it about it because we've really been focused on the city of Buffalo. But when it comes to affordable housing and trying to deal with the housing crisis, and you know, <laughs> talk about just you know hitting the tip of the iceberg on this particular problem. But I, I believe in the city of Buffalo. Someone told me the other day, ninety eight percent occupancy in uh, rentals in the city of Buffalo right now. So, you know, we're hearing about a, a place on Elmwood Avenue where there's going to be a demolition and a hundred plus people mm-hmm. are going to be uh, put out onto the, the streets. That's just the city of Buffalo. But when it comes to affordable housing, we need more places to put it. What's going on in this area that's preventing affordable housing from popping up in different communities? Well, it's a multitude of factors. There's the, the capacity factor, which is first and foremost a funding problem. You know, there's just not enough money to build enough units to house the people that need affordable housing units. That's unquestionable. So putting that aside, the, the funding challenge. <coughs> then there's the... Let me just jump back then, because you mentioned funding. There is, at what we've heard, a commitment to more funding coming up from yes. the state level. Yes. So there is an opportunity yes. there right now. Yes. Okay. Yes. So there, there, you know, I was told in a, <clears throat> in a Zoom meeting last week um, with an organization out of Rochester that the pool of money for affordable housing development in the state has never been greater. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Undeniably. It's not enough, but it's, it's a good thing. So then the second issue is where do we put these things when we want to build them, right? So then there's the question of do we go and build where the need exists, Right, where we build where the people are that need this housing, and then or do we build it somewhere else? So right now I'm sort of interested in the do we build it somewhere else? <laughs> right? Okay, sure. That's kind of where I'm at. I'm after right because yeah. we keep we keep sort of piling on units. We keep adding units to distressed neighborhoods or near distressed neighborhoods. We don't see a lot of affordable housing development in the neighborhoods that everybody says they love. Right, North Buffalo, the Elmwood Village. Right. Um, so, and there's no real space there either. So it's a serious challenge. So when you think about affordable housing, one of the key inputs in that is land, right? Or a building. 
Um, well, where's land cheapest? Well, generally in the neighborhoods that are the least viable, right, from a market perspective, not from a humanity perspective. And so we end up seeing affordable housing done in places that concentrated poverty and racial segregation already exist. And in Buffalo, in many cases, those are neighborhoods where access to opportunity is generally limited. So then the second question is, well, where can we do that in the suburbs? Well, it turns out when you look at the suburban um, communities in, in Western New York, the places that people love, right? Our work has basically told us one thing about how our housing market in these two counties, which is the, the strongest housing markets are generally almost absolutely in lockstep with the school district ranking that comes out every single May or June in Business First. Sure. So Williamsville, go, Clarence. Yep, Orchard Park. Right, so you just go down the list. East Aurora is sure. up there, right? Well, those are the hardest places to get housing into. Can we build affordable housing in those communities so that people that need affordable housing have access to those excellent school districts? And the answer, by and large, is in most cases, no. Mm. Right. So there's reasons for that. Some is um, the zoning doesn't permit it in a way that's useful. Um, so there's some obstacle to the zoning and development standards in the community. Um, and then the other thing that's interesting is, um, you know, people that are uh, in need of affordable housing often rely on public transit, and they need that for access to jobs and they need that for access to day-to-day, right? So doctors, grocery stores, things we've talked about post-May 14th, right? So even if we could put affordable housing units in some of these suburban and exurban communities, do they work for someone without an automobile? Since we know that our suburbs are predominantly auto-dependent, right? Um, and so where do the buses go? How often do they run? Um, where do they connect to? Do they connect them to job centers? Do they connect people that are in these units to jobs that they're qualified for? So when you take all of the sort of criteria that you're looking for, um, which is what we're trying to do this, this spring and into the summer, um, we're just trying to identify, can we do this in the suburbs um, in any way, shape, or form that helps us deconcentrate poverty while at the same time offering opportunity for um, for people that want to be in a place that provides maybe their kids a better school district or them access to a job or you know something to that effect. So it's a real challenge. The last one is obviously NIMBYism. Because right. even if we find those spaces, uh, we identify those lots, um, NIMBYism could be a significant obstacle to overcome. Even if you have the right to do an affordable housing project on a given parcel of land, the community out, outcry and backlash to that could be so significant that um, you get dragged through extra environmental reviews, um, resubmission of information. Um, so they're trying to make it so that you don't proceed. Um, then there's other communities where it's just not even possible because the zoning code doesn't permit it or they permit it with a special use permit which is discretionary and then the NIMBYs come out and they say well we don't want this in our community and then the board says well you don't have the right to do this because you have to you need a discretionary special use permit and we're just going to deny that for you what do let's address then that NIMBY mindset to a certain extent is there such a stigma on affordable housing that does not reflect reality? Yeah, I think that the the challenge is we have it in our heads collectively as a society that we're supposed to um, disaggregate housing based on its type, right? So single-family housing can only be near, near single-family housing. Um, doubles can only be near doubles. And multifamily, like four units and above, that's got to be in a different spot, right? Because we – it's part of the planning profession's 
some of their black eye, which is, you know, the zoning has always been pushed forward as a, a, a protective mechanism to protect the public's health, safety, and social welfare. And then welfare became sort of codified as property values, right? Mm-hmm. So property values become this thing that we're trying to protect. Um, and so then we go, well, multifamily, no one wants to live by that. Um, and my single family is two doors down from a proposed multifamily. And if no one wants to live near that, then my market demand for my unit is less, which means the property value goes down, right? So it's, it's caught up in a lot of that. Can it be done? Yeah, it can be done. Can it have positive impacts? Yeah, it can. Um, you need a lot of things to happen. You need, you know, it has to be designed well. If to, it has to fit in the neighborhood, right? Um, the owner of the building's got to manage it properly and manage tenants properly. Let's be honest. Sometimes there's problem tenants, right? Sure. And if you talk to some of these organizations that manage these properties, um, and we had a housing summit last June with the county, and um, some of the people in the communities, planners and elected officials in other communities are saying, listen, we, we're we not against this, but what's the condition of the building going to be like? Is you know, There's serious questions about do you, is there ongoing maintenance? Is, is there someone we can call, right? So part of it is just making it so that it's not some untouchable owner that's 700 miles away that you can't touch it. It's actively managed like any homeowner would manage their property. Right. I think that's what homeowners are after. Um, but still, let's be honest, you, the nimbyism is as strong in the Elmwood Village as it is in the suburbs, right? right? So let's not sit here and pretend like that's some bastion of progressive thinking that runs magically from Allen to to Amherst Street. It's absolutely as bad in the Elmwood Village as it is anywhere else. Right. So it's really hard to do these types of projects when people come out and complain about them. And, and but listen, one of the problems with planners is we always say, well, no one ever comes out and supports these projects at meetings. Right. Right. Because we expect the elected officials to do what's right because it's the right decision. And what happens is 10 people come out and they yell at everybody on the board. And then the board's like, I don't right. got to react to those people. That must be the sentiment of the entire community. Right, so the NIMBYs can be a small, vocal, very small minority, and still thwart this type of work. Expanding on this a little bit uh, beyond the suburbs, then into the rural areas, where there's almost no affordable housing being constructed. Right, right? right. is that something that could be changing in any way? Yeah, we we're there's a committee of us working on this with a local nonprofit trying to do some affordable rural. Um, you know what we've. The nimbyism is still an issue out there, but we've tried to – we've met with some – Yeah, some of these communities are as poor as yes. the east side of Buffalo. Yeah, absolutely. The, the need for affordable housing in the rural communities is not at the same level as the city, but there's there's massive need there. Um, what we've done and met with elected officials in some of the rural communities said, listen, the NIMBY problem is there are everybody's like, well, who's going to live here? Right. And it's always those people. Right. Mm. Again, it's a really mm-hmm. slippery conversations about who's going to move into our community. Well, at the end of the day, we've gone in and preempted that by saying, listen, the data tells us in your community, like if you're a village surrounded by a town and we take those two communities together, you have hundreds of households in your tiny rural town that are low and moderate income households who are spending significantly more than 30% of their income on housing, they're probably living in substandard housing in some way, shape, or form because quality affordable is really the big challenge. At the end of that, what we're telling them is, listen, we're building this for people in your community. This is to help people who already live here. 
We're not trucking anybody in. No one's riding public transit, God forbid, right, into your community. We're doing this for your people. So when we can have that conversation in rural communities with planning board members or, you know, elected officials, they understand. I think they get it. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be pushback. But generally speaking, if you go over, this is for residents who live here. No one's no one's moving down to, you know, Collins um, and reverse commuting back into the city because that's where they have a job. Right. Right. It just doesn't. That's, that's not logical. So we got to kind of tear down the NIMBY boogeyman a little bit and and have a conversation in rational terms about what what this is going to do and how it's going to work. Um, and I think we can get that kind of stuff done. And and that takes me to my last question. You almost <laughs> answered it for me to a certain extent, but you've done a great job, I think, of helping us work through and understand a lot of these policies and that are very difficult, very complicated. Yeah. There's no doubt about that, and I, I want to most certainly make sure that that disclaimer is out there. That being stated, though, beyond policy, from maybe a, what do we call it, a social philosophy perspective, what's your thought to the general listener about why this needs to be addressed, about how it can be addressed, and, you know, is it doable? Yeah, I mean, everything is doable if we have an endless supply of money, right? I mean, I think at the end of the day, money is always our biggest What about budget. Will, though? But Will is lacking, Clearly, in a lot of spaces, will is, will is undeniably lacking. But, um, you know, the things that people wring their hands about in cities, oh, crime and the education systems, this or all these, like all of those challenges are really an outcome of the way we've organized our cities, um, the way we've educated our people. If we really want to have a conversation about how we change a lot of our systemic problems, it is deconcentrating poverty, getting people access to more opportunities and, and, and better opportunities. Um, and then let's have a chance at a conversation about, what you know, where people's what actual opportunity looks like what i say all the time is it's easy to say you know rugged individualism and lift yourself up by your bootstraps but if you were born without those bootstraps and you live in a neighborhood um where a concentrated dish disadvantage exists um the likelihood that you're going to be able to lift yourself up by your bootstraps is really really challenging it's not impossible but the 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 hill that the person coming out of that neighborhood has to climb to get out of that challenge is monumental versus someone who grew up in a suburbs and went to a great school district and had lots of opportunity. That are two different things. So fundamentally, I firmly believe that housing is the medium through which our lives go in in direct in different directions. And, and a lot of that is in, is in inherently a geography question, which is it's based really in a lot of ways on where that house is located and the geography within that. And if that geography is not good versus the geography that's good, the people have a better chance in that better space because the opportunities and privileges it affords them versus the other ones. Jason Knight, Associate Professor from the Department of Planning at Buffalo State. Thanks very much for joining us on Buffalo What's Next. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.